Worms to the podcast that celebrates everything your book-loving soul desires. I am Frances Everly, romance and fantasy romance author, and I am proud to be the bookworm unleashed. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Voice of Fear by Heather Graham. Now, I have to confess something, though, before we start. I got caught up in my writer brain this week, which is why I'm a little bit late with this podcast. I got a little bit distracted with my own writing and had a difficult time getting into this book because I could not distract myself with it. I couldn't get my brain to wrap around the storyline, but I'm going to do my best to do it justice because I've grown up loving Heather Graham's novels. Now, if you're familiar with Heather Graham's books at all, you know of the Crew of Hunters series. I think she's got almost 40 books in this series out. And each book is a criminal being brought down by investigators, FBI agents, and police agents, people from different walks of life that have the ability to see and communicate with ghosts. That's right. The undead become crime fighters in this series, thanks to the FBI task force known as the Crew of Hunters. And again, this is all a crew that can that have the ability to see ghosts and talk with ghosts. In this particular book, in Voice of Fear, the ghost is that of a deceased officer named Alfie. Alfie, sadly, was killed in the line of duty, trying to find a young girl that he had helped get off the streets. He thought of her as a daughter, and he helped her get cleaned up and taught her how to respect herself and taught her all different things about survival. But then she went missing one day, and he decided to go looking for her. He went gung-ho, and what he found was this criminal enterprise led by some mysterious force named John Smith. Nobody believed him at first that this criminal enterprise, this elaborate enterprise, existed. Everything was just coincidence. Because how could one criminal enterprise entertain drug trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and... Brutal murders. Now, the lead uh, criminal in this it was is believed to be running by an alias, obviously, John Smith. Um, but he is also believed to be that of a criminal named Rory Ayers. And this man was sent to prison, so nobody knows how he was able to command his criminal enterprise from lockup. But he was caught 
burying his stepdaughter alive. He tried to murder his own stepdaughter. And that is how he got caught. He was cocky. But he wasn't caught for anything else, and nor was Alfie's dear friend Susie found. Which leads us to a FBI agent by the name of Jordan Wallace going undercover at a hotel uh, where she believes human trafficking is occurring. She is young and she is beautiful and she poses as a college girl on vacation. And this attracts the attention of the very organization that she wants to bring down. She is, unfortunately, attacked while in the pool of this hotel and knocked unconscious. But she comes to just as they pull into a, an abandoned warehouse. She manages to slip free of her hand ties and as the criminals open the back of the van, she manages to attack them and get away. And as she's running, she's shouting at them that she's an FBI agent and they're going to hear sirens any minute. And lo and behold, that was not the idle threat that she was thinking it was going to be. Because... One Patrick Law, a psychiatrist, comes to her rescue. Patrick Law's siblings and he all have the ability to communicate with ghosts, but they also have extra abilities. In Patrick's case, he is able to read minds. And he was brought in on this case by the late Alfie. And because Alfie brought him in, he, Alfie knew where to bring him, and he was able to rescue Jordan. And because he was able to rescue Jordan and the other FBI agents got there in time, they were able to bring down a huge chunk of this criminal mastermind's enterprise because inside the factory were cells containing female prisoners and a few male prisoners as well as guards and lieutenants and a woman that all of the captives knew as mother. Mother was responsible for cleaning them, checking them for blemishes, dressing them up, teaching them different things to get the biggest bang for their buck. Not for the girl's buck. No, no, it is for the sa- their sale because 
our criminal mastermind wants to make money on them. He doesn't care what happens to them once they're sold. They could be used in snuff films for all he cares. And that's the exact term that Heather Graham uses. They could be used in snuff films. It's a horrid thought. As well, they were able to capture the mother. And they were, bro- they were able to bring her in and question her. And it turns out that she is a criminal that they have had dealings with in the past. She will not speak to them. But from some of the information that they gathered in this warehouse and from one of the guards that got injured during the gunfight and the FBI's raid of this factory, they were able to discover an approximate location of houses that contain hostages. So what this organization did to get people to follow him, John Smith would get them to tell harmless drugs like marijuana. And they would, sorry, my throat's a little dry. Um, they would sell these drugs And then he would get them to do a little bit more and a little bit more. And then when they tried to get out, he would threaten the lives of their loved ones. And to keep them under control, he would kidnap these loved ones and keep them in a secure location while under the constant threat of death, torture, and being sold into human slavery, human trafficking. This was enough to get many people to do his bidding. And uh, so because of this, they were able to pinpoint a location where they believe some of these hostages were being held. And... When they go to this location, they climb a wall. It's a state park that has private homes bordering on it. And they climb the wall and see that a woman is about to be shot in the head. Right there in the backyard. They shoot the gunman. They go inside. They Rescue the women and children inside that first safe house. And then they decide to check a couple more locations in that area. And they manage to find two more safe houses full of women and children being held captive. And, but still no sign of Susie. And then they find, a couple days later, they find uh, an old house that's used, I'm assuming for horror flicks, because that's kind of the description that's given here. It's rented out for horror films. There's a an abandoned cemetery nearby. 
and catacombs beneath the cemetery or the chapel. Uh, I assume chapel ruins, perhaps? And they, they find this location, and they find another prisoner with several more captors. They bring down those captors. They release the prisoner, who reveals to them that Susie was there. They held her there. She doesn't know what happened to her because she went out and didn't come back one day. But she was a feisty woman, a feisty hostage. She was always fighting against the captors and fighting against everything they wanted her to do and drawing their attention off the other prisoners and writing secret messages on the back of tombstones. But nobody knows what these messages were because nobody finds them. She also reveals that she overheard the captors talking about having murdered somebody and doing something with the body that nobody would suspect they'd ever find it. Which, of course, leads the investigators to believe that they buried the bodies in the graveyard. Because where better to bury a body than with other dead bodies? Known dead bodies that are supposed to be there. You would think nobody's going to look there, right? Except they know that you're renting this creepy house right beside this creepy cemetery. They find out that you murdered people. They're even, they might not even find out. They could just assume because you're that kind of people. Why wouldn't they search that cemetery? So it might seem smart, but it was actually really dumb. <laughs> I found it a little bit amusing though. They, they, so they find a body in the cemetery that doesn't belong there. And then in the catacombs, they find a couple more bodies. And at this point, Jordan and Patrick are exhausted. They're filthy. They're covered in cobwebs and spider webs. So they're ordered to go back to their hotel and get cleaned up. And it wouldn't be a Heather Graham novel without a little bit of romance. Well, in this case, I wouldn't say that there was that much romance. There was a lot of fade to black scenes, which if you don't know what fade to black means, it means there were sex scenes without the descriptions. And being a fan of romance, I personally like those descriptions. Fade to black drives me a little bit batty. But for a book like this, it kind of works. Because the idea behind this book is not specifically the romance, but the mystery. So anyway, after this, they get cleaned up. They have a little boom boom time, a little bang bang, hanky panky, whatever you want to call it. And then they get back on the case. Or rather, the dog starts barking. Patrick's dog, who has got like all of these certifications, he's essentially a 
service dog with police training and cadaver training. He's, this dog is nuts, the amount of training he has been through. And the dog starts going crazy the minute that Patrick leaves. He's not gone for a long time. But in the short time that he is gone, they discover that somebody is watching Jordan. And somebody went from the back of her house to the... No, from the front of her house to the back of her house and somehow scaled the tall wall that fences in her yard. They don't find whoever this was. But it's enough to move Jordan and Patrick into a safe house with (laughs) two other sets of agents, which happen to be Patrick's sisters and their spouses. So we've got three couples staying in this house, one of them being very, very new. I mean, they haven't been on a date. All they've done is screwed three times in one night. That's it. But they're already talking about meeting families and how nervous it's going to be and awkward it's going to be staying in this house and sharing a room when they're still so new and worrying about what his sisters are going to think of her, that she's feeling a little awkward herself. She didn't want to walk into this house and say, hey, I'm going to go take this bedroom with your brother. I don't care if you're cool with it or not, but it's happening. (laughs) But she does go in there a little anxious and nervous about what they're going to think and whether one of them should sleep on a couch, if there's going to be uh, an extra bedroom, what this living situation is going to be. And when they get in there, she is greeted very warmly by Patrick's sisters, who straight out assume that she's already involved with Patrick. And they tell her, you can have that third bedroom way over there with Patrick. It's the newest renovated room in this house. And it's far away from the rest of us, so you can have some privacy. So already, they're barely a couple, and everybody's assuming that they're more. This relationship just moved really super fast. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, because I started getting into my own writer brain, I had a very difficult time focusing on this story. And that the romance plot line just did not do it for me in this book. Anyway, after getting some much needed rest, they're back at it. They go out and dis- and start interviewing people. They try to interview the mother again. They're interviewing people in the hospital. And 
the man they assumed this entire time to be John Smith, um, who has been in prison this entire time and is actually Rory Ayers, is found hanging in his cell. He is hanging by a belt in a cell by himself. And the question on everybody's mind is, how did he get that belt? How did he, how did a man who was not indicated to be suicidal on any measure able to do this? He's unconscious because he was found in time and he's at the hospital. Are you getting where I'm going with this here? That's right. He pretended to try to kill himself to get out of prison because his huge enterprise is being brought down bit by bit by the crew of hunters. While at the hospital, he comes to supposedly comes to, he might have been alert this entire time and an incredible actor. He murders the doctor very brutally with a scalpel. He murders the guard. He steals the doctor's clothing and his wallet, and he escapes from the hospital. So now everybody is on high alert for this guy. They're searching high and low anywhere they can possibly think of. And they're doing that and keeping track of people's money. And it turns out Mr. Ayers, um, his ex-wife, the mother of the stepdaughter that he tried to kill, was very, very wealthy. And she had a large sum of money withdrawn suddenly and transferred to a new bank account. There's guards, police, FBI, all around her house. She has security for her house. But just to be safe, they all decide, let's go and check up on her anyway. Because she just withdrew this big amount of money. All of Rory's accounts have been frozen. He is not able to get anything out of any of his assets. He's going to be in desperate need of money to go on, to go on the run. So it's a big possibility that he has somehow gotten to her. And is getting her to transfer money to him. Now the question is, is her life in danger? Probably, because this man's a psychopath. So they go to her house, but on the way they stop at the cemetery and they collect our ghostly pal, Alfie. And when they get to her house, the agents outside her house inform them that they've seen nothing, they've heard nothing, you know, everything's normal, everything's fine. So 
Alfie goes in the house and he checks it out. And he comes back out and lets them know that he, Rory is definitely there. The housekeeper is unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. And he is holding his ex-wife hostage in front of a computer, waving a gun around, trying to get her to transfer money to him. So Jordan comes up with a plan. Because she's about the same age as his former stepdaughter, she decides to go in and knock on the door and pretend that she is an old friend of said stepdaughter from college. And she goes in and introduces herself that way. Which, because of her appearance and her youth, and his inability to think past certain parts of his anatomy gave her the opening she needed to get that woman to safety. While Patrick is breaking in a window in the back as silently as possible to come around behind Rory to disarm him. Unfortunately, Rory gets away. We're not sure how this happened, but he manages to escape without anybody outside being the wiser that he was even in the house. They call it in um, to get back up in the house and they search high and low. They're tearing down walls, everything, searching for the possibility of some kind of secret passageway. But nobody finds anything. Then Patrick says, you know, he went through the kitchen and I caught him going down the stairs. So maybe that's how he got out. Maybe there's something we missed downstairs. So him and Jordan go downstairs and they're looking around and they don't see anything. It looks like a typical basement with abandoned bikes everywhere. I don't understand why there's a pile of abandoned bikes in a basement. But <laughs> they're looking around through the past this pile of bikes, looking everywhere in the bricks, everywhere, looking for some sort of indication of a hidden passageway, footsteps, anything. When Jordan finds something that looks like a little handle in the floor. So she pulls the handle and part of the wall opens up and reveals a hidden tunnel. A hidden tunnel that looks like it may have been um, the ruins of a house that was on this property before. And through those ruins, he has created and dug out a tunnel for himself. So they go through this tunnel and they find a hatch in the in the roof of the tunnel and they climb up and discover that the tunnel leads outside the walls of this mansion and right into the state park so now there's a manhunt going on again in the state park the man's ex-wife is in the hospital getting care because she had a seizure 
And no, was it a seizure? Yes, it was a seizure. And her housekeeper is also in the hospital getting care. So thankfully, nobody has died. Now, this man, he's got nowhere to go and he is stuck in State Park. He's got no money, no funds, no assets, nowhere to go, no cars, nothing. So they're scouring the State Park thinking that he has got hidden caches somewhere of tools he can use to disguise himself, kind of like a chameleon. Uh, putty to change aspects of his face, wigs, um, colored contacts, maybe things like that, along with like food and and whatever. They don't know if he actually does have these things. They're just assuming because nobody's found them. But he's also able to stay hidden for a long amount of time. So they're searching these woods, but they can't, they find no trace of him. So Jordan and Patrick go and visit his ex-wife in the hospital, and she thanks them profusely for saving her life. And then they get an alert that a man bearing this Rory's description was caught trying to get into her room. But he fled the scene of the hospital. He stole a car, and then he dumped that car, hijacked another car, and threw the driver off the freeway. And now the driver is in the hospital. So at this point, Rory Ayers could be anywhere. But they still think he's in the state park. It's a good place to hide. Hundreds, maybe thousands of wooded acres. Easily concealable in that kind of area. Could hide for years without anybody able to find you. So Rory is in the woods. That's what everybody's assuming. And there's the possibility that he's got caches. But in the off chance that he doesn't have these caches, he's going to be searching for way stations, vending machines, um, things like that. They get a hit on an ATM in an abandoned ranger's station. And they get this hit because Rory decided to try and use the doctor's credit card to get some money out. So now they have confirmation that he's in the state park somewhere. So around this area where the money was withdrawn, they go searching for other way stations that have vending machines. And lo and behold... They find him at one of these way stations, but he is not alone. No, he comes charging out of the woods, but there's somebody already at the vending machines when Patrick and Jordan get there. They're able to save this person, 
but unfortunately Mr. Ayers manages to escape again. But in this case, it's kind of a happy saving because he might have gotten away. But they have found the long-lost Susie. They bring her back to headquarters and question her, and she is reunited with her child. She had a two-year-old child who was in lockup with her that she managed to conceal by having one of the other women there claim him as their child instead of hers. And she did this to protect him. She's a very smart woman. A very smart woman who has had a very rough life. We still don't understand what Rory Ayers' obsession with her is. It was presumed that he was maybe the father of her two-year-old child because this child would have been born likely while she was in captivity. Um, but she is quick to assure everyone that Rory Ayers is not her son's father. In fact, she believes her son's father to be uh, some British tourist who was out for a good time and probably didn't even realize that he was in the middle of a sex trafficking ring. You know, he was probably just thought he was there for a good time and the girls were all willing. So she had no ill will towards him. It still does not explain Rory Ayer's obsession with her. But this obsession with her does lead Jordan to another plan, a plan to draw him out once and for all. Just so happens, she's conveniently a similar build to Susie. And they have an expert makeup artist employed by the crew. So she just asks this makeup artist to make her look Like Susie, she borrows Susie's clothes. They get a wig that matches kind of Susie's hair. They do a little bit of putty and makeup to her face. Enough that from a distance, she would look like Susie. But up close, he would be able to tell. So the plan is that she is going to draw him out by going to Alfie's grave. And they have the other agents spread the word, you know, kind of like they're talking amongst themselves, believing that nobody is around to hear them while they're searching the woods for Rory, that she has gone to this gravesite, that she will be going to this gravesite because she wanted to say goodbye to Alfie one last time before going into witness protection. So... He overhears this. And when they get to the cemetery, he's already there. They are not aware of this, of course. Um, but Patrick gets um, a little jazzed up too and disguised. 
And they part ways in the cemetery like they're friends saying goodbye to each other. And he goes off and hides in this one mausoleum while she goes and kneels down by Alfie's grave. And uh, people are starting to leave the gravesite, be- the graveyard, because it's getting dark and the graveyard closes at night. There's an odd person here and there, but there is one group of tourists. Now, the original thought, I guess, is that he couldn't possibly be with the group of tourists. But Patrick hears something, something that only he could hear with his ability to hear people's thoughts. Ha <laughs> ha they won't suspect this. This is a great plan. <laughs> that gets Patrick to looking around and thinking of different ways that he would be unexpected. And that's when he settles on this tourist group. He watches them for a minute and realizes that something is off. So he goes and he very cleverly joins them. He introduces himself and says, hey, I'll pay full, full fare, even though I'm coming in late to this. Can I join you guys? And one of the guys in the group says, sure, whatever, go ahead. (laughs) Was a really dumb move. These criminals, for criminals that are so smart, they're really kind of dumb. Patrick is able to decide which ones are are the bad guys and which ones are not. And he manages to stay with the group long enough to figure out that the one scruffy dude is probably Rory Ayers. And he's got a gun on one of the young girls in the group. Now, this poor girl is terrified, and Patrick doesn't do anything. But he does say things into his calm, over, that's overheard in his calm, um, like, cool tattoo, man. And that leads Jordan to believe there's a reason he's mentioned this tattoo. She thinks, oh, that must mean there's a second person in that group holding these people hostage. So Rory Ayers has an accomplice. And on top of that, she's able to deduce that it's probably a a prison tattoo. Otherwise, why would Patrick mention it? So again, accomplice. And she's trying to figure out, okay, how do I get him to step away from this group? I need him to focus on me and draw him away from the group. So she gets up as if she's going to leave and she goes into a mausoleum. And Rory 
sends somebody in after her. And she very cleverly knocks this guy out with the butt of her gun. And then, because the guy does not come out and he's not answering Rory, Rory comes in, takes one look at her, and realizes that this is not Susie, like he had thought, but the meddlesome FBI agent that had been causing him so much grief this entire time. And he goes a little crazy. And in his craziness, his gun moves away from the girl. And Jordan takes, gets the girl down and gets her out of the way. Just as Patrick comes flying out through the stained glass of a near, another nearby mausoleum, and tackles Rory to the ground. And while he's doing that, more FBI agents come out of the background. That is it for Rory and his accomplices. The last, apparently he had three, uh, two accomplices in that group, and that last accomplice didn't really want anything to do with this plan. But his family was amongst those being held hostage. And leads them to believe that there are more hostages out there than the ones in the three houses. Sorry, four houses that they liberated. So there's going to be a search for more of these houses, more of these victims. But the hope is that the organization is over. Because they've cut off the head of the snake now. And everybody goes on to live happily ever after. Susie says her goodbyes to Alfie. Alfie goes into the light. And it's a wonderful, beautiful ending. And Patrick decides to join the FBI and move to be with Jordan. And in the span of, I think, maybe a week, this non-existent relationship has gone full-blown living together situation. This is what they're planning. Not that I'm against that at all, to each their own. But I would have liked to have seen the relationship develop a bit better. Anyway... What did you guys think? I want to hear your thoughts. Now, come on, bookworms, give them to me. You can leave your thoughts on my Instagram page at Bookworm Unleashed. You can follow me on TikTok. Um, that's my author account on that one. So that's author Francis F. D. Everly. And I have a Facebook page, The Bookworm Unleashed, as well, that you can also follow for more updates. And my friends, bookworms, next week I will be going to my first international book signing. Um, it's called Flirty in Kansas City. 
I am terribly excited about this and I am going to be doing a lot of things to get ready for this coming week. So from for the next two weeks, I will be on hiatus. But I will be back better than ever with some great books for you guys. Because at this book signing event, not only is it my first international book signing event, but it's my first book signing event of this magnitude. There will be over 100 best-selling authors also attending this book event in Kansas City. If you're in the Kansas City area February 18th, stop by the Embassy Hilton um, at City Plaza. Tickets are free on Eventbrite, and I can't wait to see you. And if you're not in Kansas City, make sure you follow my Instagram and TikTok because I will be posting and sharing a lot about my, (laughs) my adventure in Kansas City my bookish adventure. It's going to be a lot of fun and I can't wait to share that with you guys. But for now, good night. See you later, bookworms, and keep on reading.